Today on Pilot's Discretion, we're joined by aviation journalist John Ostrauer. He tells us about some recent close calls in the airline world, what mainstream journalists get wrong about aviation, and why he's interested in flight simulators. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Welcome, Pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. You can catch up on every previous episode by visiting sporties.com slash podcast, and you can always share your comments or guest ideas with us. Send us an email, podcast at sporties.com. Today, our guest is John Ostrauer, a veteran aviation reporter who has worked for the Wall Street Journal and CNN, among others. After a decade plus in that world, he founded The Air Current, an online aviation magazine where he is editor-in-chief. He's also a flight simulator enthusiast and co-founder of Yaman, a company developing a new flight sim controller, which we'll talk about. John, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. John, thank you for having me. So U.S. airlines have been in the news a lot lately, and you've been part of that story, writing some of these. Uh, unfortunately, the, the news is not always for the best reasons. So after a decade of really incredible aviation safety, there's been some close calls, first with two runway incursions in New York and Austin, then the story that you broke about a United flight leaving Maui that dipped to within about 800 feet of the ocean. And in mid-February, acting FAA Administrator Billy Nolan sent out a safety call to action. So lots of headlines flying around. I'm interested in your perspective as someone who's watched the airline business for a couple decades. Is this a dangerous trend we're on, or is this just the media overreacting to some headlines? It's a great question. Really, really great, great question. And, and I think the context for all of this is hugely, hugely important. So when you think about where we are right now in aviation, aviation history, you know, we're just coming out of effectively a, an obliteration of the airline industry. I mean, we should, we, like, we, I think the world wants to move, has a strong urge to move past the pandemic uh, and kind of get life back to normal. That doesn't mean it is, right? And, 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 you know, this was an industry that in the days, earliest days of COVID was estimated to have the single highest exposure for economic impact. And so that's exactly what happened. The world stopped flying. And so the airlines had to figure out how they were going to survive. And one of the ways that they survived in the US was number one, they they had a significant payroll support package to keep a lot, a lot of the pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, rampers, maintenance folks, everyone uh, on payroll while they kind of tried to reduce the amount of cash they were burning. But in conjunction with that, a lot of what happened was that a lot of senior pilots took voluntary buyouts. It was, a, it was the, the right time to retire in that regard. And they were, they were ex, they're expensive pilots from a, from a financial perspective. And there's a lot of experience that left the cockpit in the US. And so there's been a massive amount of turnover. And I think if you, if you look at uh, the system dynamics, right, you have to look at the aviation system, not as just like in a disc each discrete part, whether it's ATC, or whether it's uh, whether it's pilots or, or airplanes or supply chain that builds airplanes or, or whatever, I, you have to look at it through the lens of the system having been ramped down 95, 97% in the spring of, of 2020, and then ramped way the heck back up. And it, since April 2022, when the mask mandate was lifted, 
these airlines have been going like gangbusters. International traffic is is surging. Domestic traffic is is, is surging. They're they're back at pre um, twenty nineteen revenues. Uh, they're not back at pre twenty nineteen capacity because there aren't enough pilots and there aren't enough planes and there aren't there's enough staff to to run the type of schedule that they want to run. But the whole system is so fragile right now. Having something as finely tuned as the national airspace system which is all of the players within it, having effectively been destroyed briefly, shut down, and then started up again. So I, I think that it's really important when you see all these incidents, they're put in the proper context of what is the state and health of the system versus what is sort of the natural things we hear, we, we hear or don't hear that happen every single day within aviation that are troubling, but common, if, the, if that makes sense, the things that don't necessarily rise to newsworthy. But I think where we find ourselves now in the FAA, certainly uh, in putting out a, a call to action on safety on, on Tuesday, recognizes that this is out of the ordinary. Is there a single thread you think that ties these together? I mean, there's talk about training standards, uh, rest rules, uh, ATC technology, is it just sort of a perfect storm of all those, or is there one particular area you think that needs the most attention here? That's a great question. I think it's one thing to look at each individual discrete incident, and you could say, well, this is this is because this reason, this reason, this reason, and the, and the, the dots don't necessarily connect. But I think where they do connect is sort of more contextual than factual, if that makes sense. So if you if you step back and look at the overall system, it is what happens when you push a system, the risk of, of what can happen when you push a system too fast, too hard. And I, I spoke with a lot of airline pilots this week who all kind of relayed the same feeling from the cockpit, which was that it's time to slow things down. And that's hard to do because there is incentives to, uh, because people want to travel, number one. Um, there are financial pressures if you're an airline to, to slow things down. Um, oh, the only entity that can really slow things down is probably the FAA, um, in terms of just moving things more slowly. And, the, and because the, the, the system again is showing signs, there's a real concern among senior safety officials at airlines in government, both current and retired, uh, who are sort of, you know, looking at this and going, the system cannot be pushed this hard right now, given the change in experience in the cockpit, given uh, the fragility of operations, of IT systems, of uh, of all of it. So I think it you know the, the overarching heading, the context here is a very fragile system that's telling us that all is not well. Seems like a potential analogy here is the global supply chain. Uh, economy really, and and going through a similar situation where really got shut down. The emergency brake got pulled in 2020, and then we decided maybe six months later that we needed to crank it way back up. And they're just as a result of all the efficiencies of modern business and you know lean manufacturing and and the complicated supply chains. It's just there's no slack in the system, and so trying to spool it back up quickly uh, just didn't work. And it seems like we're we're learning some of the same thing that. You know, having these highly optimized and efficient businesses and air traffic systems are really, really great, but there's just not much slack in the system when something goes a little awry. I think one question that also is on my mind and has come up a little bit recently is 
how do we learn from this, these near misses, and make sure they don't turn into real disasters? There's been a lot of talk about that. I know it came to light in New York that, once again, this issue of cockpit voice recorders and the CVR being overwritten. The NTSB for years has been asking for maybe 25 hours of CVRs and cockpits. That seems to have not gone anywhere. Do you think there's work that can be done there to make sure we're learning all we can from these near disasters? Well, certainly the the NTSB having that on their on their wish list for safety changes is is hugely relevant given all these different incidents that have unfolded and not the lack of availability of of a cockpit voice recorder to kind of illuminate. That's going to be a a change that has to uh, come from the regulators. And that's going to obviously have to be negotiated uh, with labor and, uh, and obviously what is the, the implication for, um, for airlines in terms of the technology, how you actually get these recorders in the mix and change their behavior. If we find uh, that these types of incidents keep recurring, I think the pressure to do that is going to be greater for, you know, heading into FAA reauthorization um, and heading into uh, you know, what the rest of the year looks like. And hopefully it won't, it won't ultimately, I think we need ultimately safety experts want more answers here about how this took place and looking for common threads around whether it's CRM, ATC instructions, what, what's going on in these cockpits when this is, when this is happening. Two other pieces that have been in the news, perhaps related, perhaps not the NOTAM disaster where flights were grounded because the the U.S. NOTAM system went down. Southwest Airlines had just a horrible Christmas news cycle with their IT meltdown and really getting their whole fleet and pilots out of whack. What's the technology side of this? Uh, Those aren't so much safety issues. Those are more inconvenience or schedule issues. But uh, what needs to happen, do you think, on the technology side to keep up with the growth that is already here and is projected to continue at least short term. Well, you made a great point about lack of slack in the system. And what and fundamentally what what I hear you saying is that there's a lack of resiliency. And the resiliency is built in through a lot of different ways, whether it's whether it's uh, human capacity or whether it's technological capacity to, you know, have a failsafe if something goes wrong. And while the FAA certainly had a a duplicate system running between the federal NOTAM system and the U.S. NOTAM system, which is the legacy system, uh, they ultimately, it was not one that was redundant or res- resilient enough to withstand what what happened. Um, in the case of, of Southwest, you know, that was a perfect storm of, of different, of different factors. And so, you know, again, I think the, the going forward strategically, the next probably 20 years of, of airline operations are going to be spent figuring out how to create a more resilient operation. By the way, resilience costs money and it probably will end up increasing airline costs. But I think if you uh, spend for resiliency and you avoid a $800 million loss in revenue because of a, an operational meltdown, the, 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 the math pencils out in terms of how what you're optimizing for. So I, I think the the priorities for optimization for, for the airlines are going to begin to shift. And frankly, I think we're already starting to see that. And the airline that that ultimately builds in the most resilience in their business is probably going to be the one that wins. 
That's a great point about about cost. It's not free that you know, we take it for granted that I can get an airplane and for sometimes $200 fly across the country with essentially a near 100% chance of arriving safely. Uh, but there is a cost to providing such efficient and low-cost service. And, and some of that's probably just going to have to be uh, increased in order to handle that resilience. I, I'm interested in how you cover this from your perspective. As I mentioned, the, the airlines have had a lot in the news recently, and you sort of straddle the line. You're an aviation journalist. You've been in the industry for a long time, but you've also worked at some mainstream organizations like the Wall Street Journal and CNN, where the average person isn't an aviation expert. So how well do you think in general the wider media does at covering aviation stories? You had, I thought, a a particularly interesting example recently you posted about this Maui incident where the air current had a story on it that was pretty factual and had the the ADSB data and uh, and some of the quotes from people involved versus the Daily Mail front page that had a you know screaming headline about terror in the skies or something. While that's an extreme example, how well do you think in general the the media industry does at carrying covering these complicated topics? On the whole, pretty poorly. Um, if I'm being blunt here, um, that it's not to say it's not, there's not wild variation within the, the, the media community. There are publications that cover aviation phenomenally, phenomenally well. Um, you know, Bloomberg, Reuters, the Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, the Seattle Times, uh, Flight Global, Aviation Week, HEW, uh, AIN. I mean, there are publications that do this and that are committed to, to doing uh, really solid, phenomenal reporting. Um, the media ecosystem broadly. So I have, so I started my career as a blogger on my own. I, I, be, I became a magazine reporter for flight. I, I was a newspaper reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I was aviation editor for, for CNN TV network, and I started my own publication. So I have seen every single point of, of, of media uh, as, it, as it is right now and trying to understand the various business models that drive each different type of business. And a lot of um, particularly new media, I think, is driven by a business model that disincentivizes uh, straight factual reporting. And it's not to say it's not factual. It's just that the straightness of it. Where where there's a lot of additional uh, sensationalism rolled in by default, because ultimately, and it's not. And by the way, it's this is not exclusive to aviation reporting. I mean, it's like if it there's all there's all you know if it bleeds, it leads, and that's a that is a bias that a lot of media have given the incentives of their business model, which is to say to get people to engage and to get people to share and read and comment and and, and all that and click. And so, yes, there humans humans respond to emotional appeals. That's just it's, unfortunately it's a, it's a hack of human nature. Um, for the short term, that that can be very um, beneficial. In the long term, it it ultimately is corrosive. Uh, so, how that kind of plays out when it comes to aviation is can vary very, very, very widely. Uh, there are. Um, Again, like I said, tremendous publications doing tremendous mainstream publications doing tremendous work on a, a, aviation aerospace reporting that plays a really important role in the public's broader understanding of how this industry works. I think one of the things, and, and if you'll permit me the tangent, how did we get to this point, right? And a lot of it happened when two things were sort of going on at the same time. One, 
media, well, actually three things were going on at the same time. Uh, media was uh, shifting economically because of the rise of things like Craigslist and LinkedIn and monster.com and indeed.com where, where job listings and classifieds that used to live inside newspapers were going online. And so the 400 page, literally 400 page Sunday New York Times in 1981 is, <laughs> it's not that anymore. All, all that revenue from, from that went away. You know, you don't look for jobs in the newspaper anymore. You don't look for, for you know, stuff in, you know, in the newspaper. And so that was happening. And the economics were, of the business were changing while social media was rising. Second, the airlines were consolidating. So take Northwest in Minnesota and take Delta in Georgia and combine them together. And guess what? You no longer have the need for an airline beat reporter at papers in Minnesota. So that consolidation sends just the expert business coverage day to day of airlines just going in a different direction where that reporter may be covering multiple beats. Uh, and you'll have, uh, you'll have someone covering, uh, various businesses at, at a business journal, you know, whether it's, um, you know, businesses that really have nothing to do with each other, but airlines are in the mix also. So, you, and so there's a loss of expert knowledge there. Okay. Number three, what was the third factor? This is all getting happening at a time when aviation is getting so much safer. And the, the, the safety of the system did not require the same type of coverage. You didn't need an air crash reporter uh, covering a, a disaster two or three times a year because it, there wasn't one. We haven't had a major, you know, knock on wood, we haven't had a major uh, air crash in the U.S. since 2001. That's an amazing, amazing thing. So the news priorities change. And understandably, and by the way, that's a good thing. That 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 last piece is 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 wonderful. The the problem uh, that we found, find ourselves in now, and we probably it's been happening over the last several years, or manifesting in the last several years, is that there when there are large air safety stories, there is less expertise to available to cover it. So the the concentration of expertise is getting smaller in main, in mainstream media, and so that I think is what we're ultimately seeing right now across the whole myriad of the media universe. What would be your quick advice to a, a new journalist, maybe who's faced with an aviation story, they're not an expert on it. If you could give them one piece of advice, what would you tell them? Are they at, a, are they at an aviation publication or are they at a mainstream publication? No, a mainstream publication. You've got somebody who's working for a cable news network or a mainstream newspaper and an aviation story pops up and this has been this assignment's been dropped on their desk. If you could give them one piece of advice, what would you tell them? Make friends with a trade reporter. You know, the, the, when it's have a gut check around around this stuff, and ha- be able to put something in context and where this all fits. And I'm going to tell you that's really, really, really hard to do if you're parachuting in the, on the day of the story. It's incredibly, incredibly hard because you'll be you'll be working on a on a, a you know an air incident, a, a runway overrun, or a or, or something at, at your local air, airport, and then the next day you're going to be covering you know the opening of a of, of a supermarket or or whatever something totally radically different, uh, your car crash, you know. So it 
it's it's really really hard when the news pressures are literally minute by minute and you are underpaid you're overworked and you're under you're finding that the resources that are available to do your job are effectively nil and so yeah it's it's it is it is a tough position to be in so the media takes a lot of flack a lot of flack but i will tell you in all my experience there there is there are uh, there are so many journalists out there who are trying every single darn day to get it right and and get it done so the public does understand more about how this all works. And I think there has been a massive malignment uh, of me of media, of figures in the media, of journalists that has been really detrimental. And I think that un- that once we kind of understand, the pressures that they exist under, you can begin to help make it better rather than just write it all off. John, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about simulators. Earn all your pilot ratings and help keep your flying skills sharp with Sporty's Pilot Training Plus. This all-inclusive membership unlocks Sporty's complete library of award-winning video courses so you can learn anywhere you have your phone, tablet, or laptop. For one annual fee, you get access to over $1,500 in courses, a smart investment in your flying career. Plus, enjoy free shipping every day of the year at sporties.com and apply for one of our three annual flight training scholarships. Learn more at sporties.com slash pilot training. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We are back with John Ostrauer, who, in addition to his work in aviation media, is also developing a brand new flight sim controller called the Yaman Arrow. John, tell me what's interesting about the world of flight simulators in general. They definitely had a moment during... Uh, the peak of the pandemic, uh, and some of that has definitely lasted. It seems like there's a new generation getting in. What's interesting to you about this world of flight simulators? You know, I, I've been simming since I was about 11 years old, so FS95 or so. Uh, and so it has been a constant in my in my life since I was a kid. And so to be able uh, to watch flight sim evolve to the point where we've got, you know, two terabytes of cloud uh, cloud scenery, um, giving effectively an unlimited photorealistic manifestation of the entire world is is amazingly exciting. So I, I'm going back to the days of like 2D airplanes and and uh, you know flat textures and 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 flat modeling and and you know it was it was super basic. So to to see what um, what the 11 year olds of the world have in terms of flight sim, it 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 fills my heart with joy. And so it's been super fun to kind of watch that evolve over time. But I, I have uh, always wanted to sort of dive. I've been making little things for as, as a very non-commercial developer for, for Flight Simulator over years and tweaking things and whatever. And so, you know, when I when I uh, look out at the world, I was like, okay, how, how do we make this even better? And this is, you know, whether it's cloud, the, the, the ability for like, you know, cloud gaming, that this can really be pretty much everywhere. And so that accessibility is really, really exciting. So what it ultimately told us was that the world is, we think is going to want a different type of controller for, for Flight Simulator. And what we've done uh, with the Arrow 
for Yaman is taken the key flight controls of an aircraft and put them into a handheld. It's about the size of an Xbox controller, pretty much identical footprint. And so we have a trim wheel. We have mechanically linked rudders. So when you push up one rudder, the other, the other, other uh, side is going to go up. And so you've got uh, pull, uh, you know, vernier style pulls like on a Cessna 172, which are great for, you know, mixture and power, um, but they're also great for um, thrust reversers and spoilers for big jets. And so we've taken uh, 21 buttons and seven axes and put them into a handheld. And so we are taking flight sim mobile. And, and we, you know, I'm, I'm simming for the first time on my laptop. Uh, I was on an airplane recently on a cross country flight and I was, you know, shooting approaches uh, in a 172 on X plane on my, on my MacBook laptop, which I can also then mirror to my, uh, my uh, TV in my living room. So, you know, it, it, it's really, really fun to be able to take this and do this everywhere. And there's a lot of really great flight sim hardware out there. The question for us was, okay, how do we do something totally new, Right. Yeah, I think what you're talking about with mobile simming is really interesting. It had not really occurred to me. I'm I, you know, flight sim fan, but still to me think of a, a big yoke, a big throttle quadrant tied to a uh, probably a desktop, maybe a laptop, and just kind of a different mindset, what you're talking about with the ability to take it with you, take it on the road and the power of laptops these days, and as you said, cloud, it really does unlock kind of a different experience, I think, in the flight sim world. Uh, and, uh, I, I think it's good for aviation in general. I know, you know, like many people flight sim, while maybe not my primary entry into aviation, definitely played an important part. I logged a lot of time on flight sim 95, just like you mentioned. Hmm. Uh, and I just think it's, it's maybe an underappreciated part of our industry and how it, it lights that initial fire of interest for future pilots or mechanics or air traffic controllers, just to get that out there at a young age. It's, so much more accessible than your typical general aviation airport, unfortunately. So uh, I think it's, I think it's underappreciated part of our industry. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I growing up, I had two things. I, I had, um, you know, a, a joystick and uh, a, a, um, a regular uh, receipt of the Sporties catalog. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you, and you know something, the, the, and, and I can draw a straight line between my love of flight sim and my love of, of flying. And I've, I've got about 50 hours in a 172 and, and it's like, you know, the, both of these things really stoked my, my, my interest constantly as I was, as I was growing up. And so to be able to, to do that, I mean, look, it's funny, you know, we are not trying to replace the, the awesome hardware that's been built for, for desktops, right. You know, like the, the yokes, the throttle quadrants and the, and the rudder pedals, those are awesome. And I, and I have them I, and they're great. Uh, you know, what we're really trying to do is, is give folks additional choices, uh, when they, when they fly, cause you know, look, they, there is a setup time that that is required when you want when you want to do this. So we're we're, we're kind of seeing this as the Bud Light versus the artisanal cocktail of, uh, <laughs> of flight simulator. You know what you just kind of if you only want to just fly for 15, 20 minutes because uh, that's all you've got before um, before you turn in for the night or or you know you've got a break in the middle of the day or whatever. Uh, we we want to be able to make sure that you can get up and flying quickly and. You know, it's it's been tremendous, tremendous amounts of fun to to develop this because you know we we've really relied on on pilot input. I'm I have uh, like I said, fifty hours of flight time. We've really tried to get the feel right, and you know, like with an Xbox controller, it sort of has that first person shooter sort of feel to it, where you you where you're throwing your thumb, you know, left and right to just kind of keep it stable all the way. What we really wanted to do and actually 
had a, a business jet pilot um, give this feedback. It was really, really valuable. I said, really have mastered that sort of two finger feeling where you're, where you're, you don't want to fly, you know, gripping the, the death grip on the yoke. You know, you just, just want to have it just be very, very subtle and, ma- and match those sensitivities. So that's been, you know, really um, a, a major goal for us to, you know, again, it's a different form factor. We're not pretending that we're, that we're, we're your yoke or a side stick here, but we want to be able to have that immersion come with you wh- wherever you go. And if you want it at your desk, it works on your desk too. All right, John, we always end pilots discretion episodes with a lightning round we call ready to copy. So I'll throw out a bunch of questions on a variety of topics and you fire back with a quick answer. Are you ready to copy? Sounds good. I want to get your no nonsense take on a few hot topics in aviation technology. So on a scale of one to 10, with one being all hype, not going to happen, and 10 being a sure thing, it's going to happen. Where would you rate the following? I've got four or five of them here. How about autonomous passenger flights, meaning an aircraft that takes off, flies, and lands without a pilot on board, but with passengers on board? I'd give it a three. How about eVTOL air taxis? A paying passenger catches a tilt rotor flight in a major city across town. Five. Supersonic business jets like the one proposed by Boom. Passenger jets, I think, are closer to the two, two, three. I think business jets, when they are ready, if, if someone puts one on the drawing board that uh, can reduce the boom, probably close seven, eight. About electric airplanes, and let's say specifically larger ones, you know, a 50-seat, 80-seat regional jet, not a not a three-seat one, powered exclusively by electric motors. Uh, zero, at least, in, at least in my lifetime. How about hydrogen-powered airliners? There's some projects there, right? Airbus working on it, some other people making noises. How realistic is that? Give that a four. So I noticed not a lot of nines and tens there, which does not surprise me, but but might be frustrating to some technologists. But so is that is that all bad or is some of the conservatism built into aviation is just normal, right? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, oh God, journalists are the worst because we're, because we're inherently geared toward being skeptical about this stuff. And, and, and by the way, I hope I'm wrong about every single answer I just gave. I want, I just want to point that out because I, I think it's so important that this stuff does succeed. I just don't want to be a, um, I, I want to make sure that it's tech, good technology and comes along with a healthy degree of, with, with reality, not a healthy degree of red, with reality and hype does no one any good. Uh, the promise of a lot of these technologies is hugely, hugely important. I want aviation to succeed. It has to, this. A lot of these have to succeed in order for for aviation to continue to grow and thrive and make sure it's something that's going to be a part of the middle and rest of this century. And it would be the single greatest tragedy of my professional and a large part of my personal life if if aviation ultimately crumbled because of we weren't able to solve a lot of these problems. I, I think, uh, I, when I, when I give the answer, the numbers that I give, they're informed by the regulatory barriers, the social barriers, the business reality barriers, uh, the strategic barriers. So like, you know, what do airlines need to be optimizing for right now? Is it air taxis or is it, or is it pilot training for the, you know, making sure that they can, and can they walk and chew gum and which do you, which do you focus on? And when it comes to supersonic, that's even more challenging given, 
given the entire thrust of the industry going in a very specific direction around reduced costs and carbon pressures and all that. So, you know, I, I think that this is going to be ve a very important, important time in aviation. I think the next seven years are going to de define how the next 30 will play. I mean, you know, look, we're not, we don't have a new air, airplane from Boeing and Airbus on, on the drawing board right now, but, and I think this is a really important piece of explaining that right now, the amount of homework being done by Boeing and Airbus and others on new technology that could potentially significantly improve the efficiency of air travel is ongoing right now. And that is really, really, really important. And I think everything that all these startups are learning about battery technology, about, about hydrogen, about, about, um, about hybrid electric is absolutely going to find its way into mainstream aviation one way or another, whether it's them being purchased by, by an existing manufacturer and rolling that in, whether it's establishing a baseline for certification standards for a lot of this technology, that is going to be the groundwork that needs to get laid for this. We're not, as much as we'd like to think we're in the 1920s in terms of new entrants proliferating, I think it's really hugely important to remember that the maturity of the system that we're in does not allow for big radical changes quickly. And the regulatory system certainly isn't designed for that. The operational system isn't designed for that. The, the commercial system isn't designed for that. So how these technologies get incrementally rolled in versus radically reshaping uh, the, uh, the industry as we see it is going to be, I think, the key strategic unlock that that's going to make that that takes the skepticism that exists within all these a lot of these projects and makes them a reality yeah I, i'm rooting for every one of these experiments I, I i'm with you i think it's great that we're trying them i hope they work i share your skepticism on most of them some of them i think attempting to copy and paste a software growth model under a hardware business is is challenging and the you know the requirements of regulation and uh and hardware and manufacturing is just tougher than scaling some some software businesses, which leads to my follow-up question, which is 25 years from now, as we look back on some of these experiments, will the bigger challenge have been the engineering and the science and technical part of it or the business model and public acceptance part of it? Which will be the bigger struggle? The latter. Yeah. Right now we can make airliners that are fully autonomous. We can make aircraft that are fully autonomous. Uh, we can put people in the back. I think there are forces within the regulatory system and labor and passenger acceptance and ultimately technological reliability that will guide that. And I think that's those are those are the important forces to watch more than just the can we, it's the everyone around in the ecosystem saying, should we? All right, some questions about pilots. In the next five years, do you think we will see any change to the 1,500-hour rule for airline pilots? No. And, and I, 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 yeah, I spoke with, uh, with uh, Sam Graves about this um, back in I think it was September, and he said it's a non-starter. They just do not politically want to touch it. Uh, so, you know, we're not going to see the FAA reauthorization be even go anywhere near this. Um, I would assume that it would be unlikely unless there is a, a change in posture from, from labor around this. 
And I think given the change in experience within the cockpit around the number amount of senior aviators that have left, I think it's going to be an even harder sell to, to, to move that number. How about the age 65 retirement? Is that going to change? I think there's an, a greater chance of that changing than 1500 hours. Yeah. How about single pilot airline operations? Every six months, it seems like this pops up in some different flavor proposed by someone. Is it in cruise or it's only certain parts of the world? What's the chance in the next five years we actually have single pilot airline operations? Zero. There is There, there will not be single pilot airline operations with passengers in the back uh, in five years. Cargo, there are plenty of small cargo aircraft operating with single pilot now. Cessna caravans, so on and so forth. Um, I think it's highly unlikely that we will see single pilot operations in the next five years. I think what we will see is advanced autopilots that are going to be helping the two pilots, whether it's auto taxi, uh, whether it's auto takeoff, um, things like that, that will, that can manage the aircraft in a different way with two pilots in the loop on two pilot aircraft. Um, I do, I think it's, I would be very surprised if, if the regulatory system allows for a single pilot in the cockpit on a typically two-pilot airplane. On the topic of Boeing, a topic we could probably spend a whole podcast on, but <laughs> I'll try to boil it down to one question. So you had a great uh, graphic you shared recently that uh, 20 years ago, nearly 80% of the single-aisle airliners in service were Boeing. Last year, by my math, Airbus delivered 40% or almost 40% more airplanes than their rival from Seattle. Obviously, there's the 737 MAX disaster, uh, lots of bad headlines from Boeing. If you had to sum it up, though, from, from a business and an aviation standpoint, if there's one lesson that needs to be learned from the last five years of Boeing, what should that lesson be? Wow, that's a, that is a gigantic question. That is an absolutely gigantic question. I think looking at all the different pieces and how they fit together. And I'm trying to, I'll, I'll try to boil that down into a, a short answer. Boeing is an ecosystem, right? You got, you have, you have its suppliers, you have labor, you have its, um, you have the, the investors, you have government all, all working together um, to make a commercial aircraft manufacturer exist. How the individual links between every node in that system and how they treat each node is going to be the thing that that ultimately brings Boeing and frankly any company success. So whether it's the relationship with labor, uh, the relationship with the suppliers, the relationship with government around making sure that that is a healthy relationship, uh, that will ultimately also obviously their customers. Uh, that's ultimately going to be the thing that that delivers. We talked about earlier about resilience and stability versus fragility. What is the more revolutionary airplane in Boeing's history? Is the 707 or the 747, which obviously recently oh. delivered last one? Which one of those made a bigger impact? 707. 707 uh, laid the groundwork for the 47. There were a lot of new technologies in the 47, but making sure the, the 707 could operate globally and that jet travel was the widely accepted future of the entire industry. It marked a, a massive, massive turning point for the last 120 years where all of a sudden, you know, the, the Lockheed Electra and the 707 flew the same month. And we only, he, you know, hear about the history of the 707. Uh, you know, here we are 
you know, 70 years later. And so within that, I think it, it tells us that it was the reflection of a massive, massive turning point as the industry switched to fl- to flying. By the way, where we've remained at, at, for the last you know seventy years, which is at you know between thirty and forty thousand feet and Mach point seven eight to. 0.85, and that's kind of where we stayed. And so to establish that as a as a beachhead has allowed every single other evolution to follow. And I think that's that's been hugely, hugely uh, influential, also for Boeing as well, to allow, um, you know, building the 367-80 demonstrator allowed for the airlines to see the world in a different way and what could be in terms of jet travel. And and I, I it's fun, you know, kind of, kind of going full circle on this. The Boeing is going to be starting on the sustainable flight demonstrator, which is a project they're doing with NASA, which is going to be, they're going to effectively be slicing and dicing an MD-90 to give it uh, what's called a transonic truss braced wing, which is a really long, slender, almost glider-like wing supported by a lift generating uh, truss, which we, we obviously we have trusses all over GA, you know, and you look at any Cessna 172, there are, you know, is there a truss supporting those wings? And this is going to be uh, a demonstration project that's going to begin in 2028 and probably last about a year or two. But to that configuration could represent that demonstration. It's the first commercial demonstrator that Boeing has done since the days before the 707 with a 367-80. So it's the, the potential there to to have a reshaping of, of the entire industry. And what we learn from that, in terms of what what our expectation of an airline should an airliner should look like, is on the horizon. I think that's why the next again five seven years, while there are no new airplanes, we have this very exciting set of homework years that we're seeing again, just like we saw in uh, in you know post World War II and into the fifties that spawned the jet age. John, our last question is always the same on pilot's discretion. You have one final flight, and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going. I am on a comet from London to Johannesburg in all silver BOAC. You were the first guest to pick comet for your airplane. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to go back to where I, 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 there are a certain assumptions that I, that I'm making when I, when I, when I, when I, when I say that, but if I had to, if I had to pick one flight, I wish I could have, uh, I could have taken in my, uh, in my life. I, I would have liked to, I'd like to have seen that firsthand. John, thanks for being on the podcast. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion.